Acts chapter 10, 25 through 48. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened through Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of God. The scene that we have come upon in our 16th week working through the book of Acts for us appears important, but we fail to capture 2,000 years removed from it the uniqueness of it. For the Greeks, had they walked into the scene and seen Peter, a conservative Jewish man, complete with all the clothing that was a part of that, uh, much of it symbolizing the law to which he was faithful, even as a follower of Jesus. To the Greeks coming into the scene, seeing this Jewish man in the home of a centurion, it would be humorous, it would be extraordinary. What's going on here? To the Jews, this scene would be outrageous. Not unlike if a Hasidic Jew from Israel went over into the Palestinian territory to meet and socialize with the head of the military of the Palestinians. It is that unusual, it's precedent setting. But what takes place in this scene 
is only half of the story. How the two primary characters get to this is as much a part of the story because as we've seen through the whole book of Acts, we see the sovereign hand of God through the Holy Spirit working in the lives of men, working on a global scale and on a personal scale to accomplish his will of bringing the gospel, bringing redemption and reconciliation, not just to the Jews and not just to their black sheep cousins, the Samaritans, but to the ends of the earth. I believe that this is Peter's most important contribution to the whole story of Acts and to the mission of the church. And what we want to do is back up and see how we got to this point, and then we'll learn more from the scene itself. So let's back up to the beginning of the chapter, Acts chapter 10, and we'll see this journey of these two men from very different parts of the world who God had brought geographically near each other, but in terms of their spiritual and cultural were continents apart. The first is Cornelius. Let's begin reading it at verse one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Now, let's picture this. The phrase is appropriately ended with an exclamation point. The angel appears rather excited about this moment. Cornelius is in prayer. Third hour of the day indicates that Cornelius is a God-fearer, a worshiper of the Jewish God. He had begun to adapt certain things from that faith. Three in the afternoon was uh, an important part of the prayer life of the Jewish people. He's seeking for God. It's one of the contrasts between Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius is a seeker of God. He has some important things that God needs to reveal to him. Peter, on the other hand, is a servant of God. In fact, he's the proto-servant of God. Arguably the first convert, the first to profess publicly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The proto-Christian. He is in full stride as a leader of the church. He's performing miracles, resurrections. But yet what we're going to see when we look at Peter is that God has to do something very significant in his life if this next phase of Christ's plan for the gospel is to take place. But let's look at Cornelius. He's a, he's a seeker. He's a God-fearer. And I'm sure he didn't expect this. Maybe he's got his eyes shut. The angel's right in front of him, and he doesn't even see him. Maybe that's why he goes, Cornelius! And we read on. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Jaffa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them off to Joppa. So this is scene one happening concurrently with another scene that we're going to look at in a moment. I want you to notice a few things worth noting. First of all, 
The angel was not sent to preach the gospel to Cornelius, even though that's what's really lacking. Cornelius represents the average person who's a pretty good person, the average religious person who believes in God and is trying to do their best to seek him. But like Cornelius, all of us still need redemption. We need to encounter Christ. We need new birth. But the angel did not come to preach the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is not the job of angels. It's our job. So the angel supersedes to direct Cornelius to a man who's going to bring him the gospel. One of the startling things for some of us in Christianity, based on our ideas of prayer and, uh, and faith, is that the angel says to Cornelius that your prayers have been heard by God. Your efforts have come up to him as a, as a sweet, savory sacrifice. In other words, God is honoring Cornelius in his seeking. That's pretty powerful. Have you ever heard somebody say that God doesn't hear the prayers of a non-Christian? God doesn't hear the prayers of an unconverted person. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, it's not uncommon, but this actually shows us quite the opposite, that God does hear the prayers of those who are earnestly seeking him. Everywhere where men and women in a heartfelt openness seek God, God opens a door for them to find him. If you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. The second thing that this uh, picture uh, helps us wrestle with is that old question, what about people that have never heard the gospel? You know, some people find that as an argument to never come to Christ. They have in their mind this thought that those people are totally without any recourse. If people have never heard the gospel, what happens to them? And what this shows us is that God responds when people respond to the light that they're given. And history tells us that this type of event that we see happening in Cornelius is actually more common than we think. One of my absolute favorite books, it's called Eternity in Their Hearts, written by Don Richardson. You ought to buy this because it will show you how God works. That scripture passage that says he has not left them without eternity in their hearts. Here's the deal. God's at work sovereignly in the hearts of the human race. Christ said, the fields are already white to harvest. We just need workers to go into the fields. And Don Richardson, who was a missionary, he wrote the book Peace Child. That's his own story of how God used them to reach a tribe in Papua New Guinea of headhunters. That's worth reading as well. But he's collected story after story to show similar ways that God had, through people seeking after God, God had prepared the way for people to receive the gospel. Let me read for you one short story. This is about Ethiopia's Gedeo people. Annunciation, my apologies if I don't have it right. Deep in the hill country of south-central Ethiopia live several million coffee-growing people who, though divided into quite different tribes, share common belief in a benevolent being called Magano, omnipotent creator of all that is. One of these tribes is called variously the Darasa, or more accurately, the Gedeo people. 
Few of the Gedeo tribe's half-million members actually prayed to Magano. In fact, a casual observer would have found the people far more concerned to appease an evil being that they called Shaitan. Sound familiar to you? One day, Albert Brandt asked a group of Gedeo, how is it that you regard Magano with profound awe, yet sacrifice to Shaitan? He received the following reply, we sacrifice to Shaitan, not because we love him, but because we simply do not enjoy close enough ties with Magano to allow us to be done with Shaitan. At least one Gedeo man, however, did pursue a personal response from Magano. His name, Warasa Wang. His domicile, a town called Dilla, located on an extreme edge of the Gedeo tribe land. His method to approach Magano, a simple prayer asking Magano to reveal himself to the Gedeo people. Warasso got speedy response. Startling visions took his brain by storm. He saw two white-skinned strangers erect flimsy shelters for themselves under the shade of a large sycamore tree near Dilla, Warasso's hometown. Later, they built more permanent, shiny roof structures. Eventually, these structures dotted an entire hillside. Never had the dreamer seen anything even faintly resembling either the flimsy temporary structures of the shiny-roofed permanent ones, all dwellings in Gadio land were grass-roofed. Then Warasa heard a voice. These men, it said, will bring you a message from Magano, the god you seek. Wait for them. In a final scene of his vision, Warasa saw himself remove the center pole from his house. In Gadio symbolism, the center pole of a man's house stands for his very life. He then carried that center pole out of the town and set it in the ground next to one of the shiny roof dwellings of the strange men. Warasa understood the implication. His life must later stand in identification with those strange men, their message, and with Magano who would send them. Warasa waited. Eight years passed. During those eight years, several other soothsayers among the Gadio prophesied that strangers would soon arrive with a message from Magano. Then, one very hot day in December 1948, blue-eyed Canadian Albert Brandt and his colleague Glenn Kane lurched over the horizon in a battered old international truck, their mission to begin missionary work for the glory of God among the Gadio people. They had hoped to gain permission from Ethiopian officials to locate their new mission at the very center of the Gadio region, but the Ethiopians friendly to this mission advised that such a request would meet certain refusal due to the political current and climate. Ask only to go as far as the town of Dilla, the advisors said with a wink. It is quite distant from the center of the tribe. Those opposed to your mission will think you couldn't possibly influence the entire tribe from such a peripheral town. There it is, Brandt said to Cain. It's only the very edge of the Gadido population, but it will have to do. With a sigh, he turned the old international toward Dilla. Glenn Cain wiped sweat from his brow. This is a hot one, Albert, he said. I hope we can find a shady spot for our tents. Look at that old sycamore tree, Albert responded. Just what the doctor ordered. Brant revved the international up, a rise toward the sycamore. In the distance, Warasa heard the sound. He turned just in time to see Brant's old truck 
pulled to a stop under the sycamore's spreading branches. Slowly, Warasa headed toward the truck, wondering. Three decades later, Warasa, now a radiant believer in Jesus Christ, the son of Magano, together with Albert Brandt and others, counted more than 200 churches among the Gadeo people, churches averaging more than 200 members each. With the help of Warasa and the other inhabitants of Dilla, almost the entire Gadeo tribe has been influenced by the gospel, in spite of Dilla's peripheral location. A little more of the story. They set up their fragile shelters, their tents, went to bed, In the morning, they climbed out of their tents and the village was sitting around them waiting to receive the word of how they can know the one true God. I love that. God's at work. God's at work. What a shame that those of us that shelter ourselves from being messengers of the gospel miss out on the privilege of seeing how he's doing that right around us too. Let's look at the next scene. So he has this vision. He sends for Peter. Now, here's, here's what's happening in Peter. Let's look at verse 9 quickly. About noon the following day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. I love this next part. This happened three times, <laughs> and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Three times. He saw it, and then he immediately watched two reruns of it. Because it had to impress him. He had to see it in a way that it stuck with him. And then we go on, and it says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. The next day they started out with them and went to Cornelius' home. This is huge. Peter is prepared by God by seeing this vision of all sorts of food that he would never eat as a Jewish man. Let me explain why this was so important because up until this point, even though the gospel has spread dramatically, thousands and thousands of people, including some Gentiles, coming to faith, even though that's happened, here we see clear evidence that the church leaders and the majority of Christians up until this point continued to see Christianity as a part of Judaism. And even Peter continued to practice his Jewish faith as a follower of Jesus, his Messiah, which meant that he followed the Old Testament law. 
And the Old Testament law said not only are there things that you can't eat, there's people you can't associate with. Couldn't have anything to do with the Greek. Couldn't be in his home for sure. Here Peter's being used of God. He understands that God wants to bring the whole world to himself. He's a part of it. And yet, years into his journey, he still has this huge blind spot that if God doesn't deal with, he's gonna become a problem rather than continue to be one whom God uses to expand the gospel. No matter what stage you're in in life as a Christian, no matter what God has done through you, no matter how much success you've had, no matter how much you think you understand about the things of God and how he works, all of us have things in our life that we don't know that we don't know. And for God to continue to use us, he has to reveal those things to us, and sometimes he has to do it in very dramatic ways. And for many of us, sometimes it takes great pain. God's gracious to Peter. He gives him a vision, and he understands as soon as things begin to happen that we're just not talking about unclean food. We're talking about unclean people. God's about to call them clean. Wow, and so Peter's open to this. But what we see in Peter in this is the problem with religious legalism. See, he's come to Christ, he understands grace, but yet he's still part of a tradition that's rooted in legalism, where you attain righteousness by practicing a a set of regulations, and arguably the ones that God gave you at one time. And, And here's the problem with legalism. Legalism is rooted in this statement. I have never... Legalism is about all the things we don't do. And haven't we had that part of Christianity at work throughout these centuries? Those that create rules of what we think it means to be holy, and then we say, are you a child of God? Well, of course I am. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't dance, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. You know, I'm dating myself to make that list. And we measure each other. And see, the problem is that's not true faith. That is a righteousness by human effort. Legalism is rooted in all the things I don't do. Real Christianity is rooted in what God does through me. See, Peter still has to outgrow this. Frankly, the Jewish people and their cousins, the Samaritans, amount to a very small fraction of the human race, even at this point in time. The majority of the work is yet to be done. And God has to break Peter of his prejudice, and he does it in a profound way. And so here we have them now coming together. Look with me at verse uh, 28. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. He's so proud of himself. (laughs) As you know, this is against the rules, but I didn't raise any objections. I'm here. What do you want? Let's pick it up at uh, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, and he tells the gospel. 
telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Uh, Heidi read it for us a few moments ago. Can I just once again review what this life-saving message is all about for you? And in this version of it, we see seven points. The first is, in verse 34 and 35, that God shows no partiality. No partiality. Anyone, at any time, and in any place, can come to faith in Jesus Christ. They don't have to convert to Judaism first. They don't have to get their life together. Wherever you are, you can come to faith in Christ. All of us can be accepted, but all of us equally need to find that acceptance through the good news. The second point is that Jesus was sent by God and was God. He's called interchangeably the Lord of all, also a man that God was with. So we see the the full deity of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man proclaimed. Point three, Jesus destroyed the works of evil. Everywhere where Jesus ministered, the miracles of Jesus demonstrated why he had come to reverse the curse of sin. And ultimately he accomplished that for by being put to death on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. Five, God raised him from the dead, and they are witnesses of him. I I love it that this time Peter said, we ate food and drank with him. You don't eat and drink with a ghost. If you think a ghost is visiting you and you can eat and drink with him, no ghost. Right? You you understand that, right? (laughs) What Peter's saying is, this is the real deal, and we saw it. Sixth. We will all give account to him. He will judge the living and the dead. Someday we will all face him. But gladly, seventh, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This was always the message. It's still the message today. It's still the path to life. And here's what happens when Cornelius and his family hear it. While Peter was still speaking, No sinner's prayer, no Billy Graham invitation. Their hearts are open. The gospel's being planted. They're receiving. And because of that, the Holy Spirit comes in power. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Let's just talk about this phenomenon. This is the third of a multi-phase inaugural coming of the Holy Spirit, whose first phase was at Pentecost, and whose second phase was when the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. Now, watch the progression here. There's this thing in Scripture that if you study it long enough, you come to recognize called progressive revelation. God progressively reveals more about himself, about his plan. We begin with scripture and we get certain pictures and images of God and then as the story goes, we gradually find more revealed that deepens our understanding and gives us a fuller picture. That's what this is about. This three-part coming of the Holy Spirit is designed to say something very important. So this is not meant to be how it's supposed to happen every single Sunday when people come to church and people come to Christ. This is uniquely, Peter observes, like what happened at Pentecost as evidenced by the gift of languages. The uniqueness of those events has to be noted. It has not become commonplace. 
Now, for Peter, that is what draws him to this conclusion. Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. See that important comparison. So he ordered that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for several days. Think about what this is saying, what is progressively revealed through these three aspects of the initial coming of the Holy Spirit was for the good of the apostles. They were the ones that were growing through this. When the Holy Spirit came on them, that was what God promised, right? When the Holy Spirit came on the Samaritans, well, they were distant cousins. (laughs) We could sort of fudge them in, but now he's come to people who are totally distinct from the Jewish way of life, and he has come in the very same manner. The gift of languages here, like in Acts chapter two, reveals something very precious to us. In Acts chapter two, all of those 120 that were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, what they were telling was the good news, it says. All the listeners from around the world who had come for that Holy Week, the Feast of Pentecost, were hearing the gospel of Jesus proclaimed miraculously in their own tongue. And you know what that tells us? And I think that's one of the important reminders of this experience for Peter. The gospel was not first preached in Hebrew. It wasn't first preached in Aramaic. It wasn't first preached in Greek. You know what the gospel was first preached in? Every possible tongue. Every possible tongue. And that's why Peter could go back to Jerusalem and tell those who were mad at him because they had the very same blind spot, could tell them the story, could say, look, this is what God did. And when he told them the story, verse 18 of chapter 11, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God. Let me just back up because this is cool. Peter's telling them the story about Cornelius and his vision of the white sheets and all these different things. And then verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. There's that connection. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what Peter does. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And here's what's interesting. That's exactly what he did before the vision. When the sheet fell and God said, kill unclean meat and eat, what's the thing he said? Not so, Lord. You see, legalism tries to dictate to God what's the right thing because we create our own expectations. And then when God shows up in a way that's different than our legalistic expectations, we even try to fix him. But the God of all grace works sovereignly to break and fix you and me. So here's quickly the implications for us, the lessons that we can learn through this. And I want to suggest four things. First of all, God is at work all around us preparing people for the gospel. You have to believe that. If you don't believe that, then of course you're not going to try But if you believe, as Jesus said, the fields are white for harvest, if you believe God's at work in the world, as we saw today, if you believe that, then that changes the rules. Because it's not up to us to lead men to Christ. It's up to us to show up with the message 
and do the harvesting. And that leads us to point two. We are God's voice with the good news, not angels. The human voice being the voice of God bringing the message of the cross. God's put that in our hands. Romans chapter 10, let's say this together. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? God's at work, but he tells us to go. Bring the gospel. My dad used to do this little thing when he spoke to teenagers in John 3.16. I just want you to turn there with me. Does that verse sound vaguely familiar to some of you who've been following Jesus for a while? John 3.16. Let's say it from memory, whatever translation or version you grew up with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. One of the deep impacts my dad had on me was when he had us as young people put an X in the middle of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, X. So if you have a pen today and you're taking notes, just write an X right there. Right in between, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and the phrase that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Put an X right there. And then down in your margin, write Romans 10, 14. How will they hear? How will they come to faith and have that eternal life unless someone tells them? That's you and me. But the problem is, there's a third implication, and that is that our preconceptions and prejudice can keep us from seeing where God's at work. We can miss it altogether because our biases have created blinders. We don't look in certain places. Our prejudices keep us from reaching out and all around us, God's at work. One day I'm gonna have Vit tell her testimony up here, but Vit's a story of, of God's grace at work like that, but also missed opportunities. Vit is from a, a, a tremendous home. She's first generation Italian, Italian American. Her parents are two of the most fantastic people I've ever met. They were the first Italian family to buy on the other side of South Orange Avenue around the park. So they were around people who were very different than them and experienced that distance and animosity from so many. On that same block was one Christian family. That Christian family was from a more legalistic perspective. And Vit has memories of watching them every Sunday, taking their Bibles, getting in their car, going someplace off to church, coming back, carrying their Bibles, never looking over. I should say that they showed up one day at their house. And Mama was ready to pull out the cookies and be the hostess that she is and create friendships. And all they did was stand at the door and hand them a track that said how Catholics are all going to go to hell and never reached out to them with the love of Christ. Their blinders kept them from seeing the possibility that God was actually at work in that home. And yet, through all those years, God was at work. Vid, as a small child, doesn't even remember who did it, but there was a group that ran a a VBS outreach in that park, and Vid attended where she heard the gospel. 
As a little girl, another family invited her to come to this Bible club at their brethren church. She felt awful ignorant there, but she did feel the love of Christ. All along, God was at work, and Vic longed to have a deeper connection with Christ, as devoted and sincere as her faith was. Longed to have a deeper connection. God was at work, and her neighbors wouldn't have even considered it. And a girlfriend in school was used by God to bring her to faith, who looked past those boundaries, who looked past those barriers. We all have blind spots. So the fourth implication is, and I'm begging you along with me, to ask God to open our eyes and hearts and to use us to bring life in his name. If God had to change the proto-Christians' prejudices, Peter, raising people from the dead in Jesus' name, if God had to change his heart to move him to the next level, does he need to change ours so that we can reach this city? And are we willing to let him? Let's just pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you be willing to say, God, take away my blind spots? Like Peter, I don't even know what they are. I've lived with them for so long. But God, you know what's there. I'm your voice to my neighbors. I'm your voice to the city. I'm your voice to this world. And I know I'm not doing my part but you are, you're out there doing the work, tilling the soil, you're at work and lives all around me. Father, lift the blinders from my eyes so that I can see where you're at work and be the voice of life to people. Father, use me in that way. Change me, Father. Let that be our prayer as we come into this fall season, each of us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.